Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Kim Symes, and I am the Director of Regional mm-hmm. Programming for Family Equality Council. Today, we're talking about family formation. As we know, there are many ways in which our families are formed. Today, we'll be hearing from experts in three different areas, focusing on cryobanks, surrogacy, and fertility. As you prepare to start growing your family, there are many different resources available and options to consider. Hopefully, this glimpse into a few areas will be helpful as you begin to chart your course. Joining us today are experts in their respective fields who will share with us an overview, some tips and tricks to know, potential challenges you may encounter, and a piece of overall advice from their years of experience in the field. I am pleased to welcome Scott Brown from the California Cryobank, Erica Horton from Growing Generations, and Dr. Juan Alvarez from the Fertility Centers of Illinois. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and we're going to begin with you today Wondering if you can share with us an overview. Hi, Kim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I am a director at California Cryobank. We're a sperm bank located in Los Angeles, California. Uh, we do have branches all over the country in New York, Boston, Houston, and San Francisco. Um, we primarily recruit sperm donors in those cities, um, but we also have the ability to store locally there and allow people to uh, actually pick up their specimens uh, if they live nearby and save, save a bunch of money on, on shipping across the country. Um, I think some of the you know key things to think about in selecting a sperm donor, number one, is where you're going to get that donor from. Um, you certainly have the option of using a known donor, somebody who is uh, either personally known to you, could be a relative of one of the partners, could be a, a colleague, an acquaintance, somebody you meet um, specifically uh, to be a sperm donor. And I think that's a, definitely a great way to go for some families. But it brings with it its own sort of challenges, and it's probably a whole other podcast. But I would just want to stress uh, at this point in general that you want to make sure that if you are doing that, you, you go through the proper legal channels. You want to protect your family. Uh, and it's critically important when using a known sperm donor to consult with a, a family attorney uh, who is familiar with donor contracts and LGBT family building and, and knows all the right questions to ask and all the, the proper forms to fill out and make sure that you really protect your family because that's critically important. Uh, similarly, you want to make sure that a donor gets a, an official workup done. You want to make sure that he does not carry any communicable diseases. Uh, you may want to look at his uh, genetic background as well. There's genetic testing available. We'll talk about that with uh, sperm banks as well. Um, but you also want to look at family medical history and make sure you're not putting your potential child at any uh, undue risk. It's just it's just really a matter of of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's because a lot of what sperm banks provide um, in their services you won't have when you do it on your own. So uh, I can't stress enough the legal stuff. That's the one thing that people tend to to not think about or not worry about. And that ultimately is is really the, the biggest issue, uh, I think, in using a known donor. Uh, using a anonymous donor uh, through a sperm bank, uh, in, in a lot of ways, is much easier. Um, all the legal stuff is taken care of. All the screening has already been done. Um, as long as you're using a sperm bank that's fully accredited and inspected and licensed and and they should all on their websites have that information available to you. Um, sperm banks uh, are overseen by the uh, American Association of uh, Tissue Banking, the AATB, uh, offers an accreditation, uh, as well as um, the FDA uh, has regulatory requirements that all banks have to follow. 
Uh, that has to do with screening as well as record keeping and other things like that. Uh, and there's some other organizations out there as well. Different states have individual health departments that have to inspect and uh, certify sperm banks. So you want to make sure that the bank you choose has all those things going for it. Um, you also want to consider uh, not only the size of the bank, but the size of that bank's distribution. So obviously, if it's a local bank, it's a smaller bank, you're going to be mostly um, sharing that bank with other people in your community or in, in the area. So if that's a concern for you about having multiple offspring from uh, the same donor in the same area, uh, that might be something to consider. That would be versus using a larger national bank, something like a bank like California Cryobank or uh, Northwest Cryobank or Fairfax Cryobank. There's a, there's a number of them out there, and you can certainly find them with a quick search on the internet. And those banks distribute uh, more nationally and in many cases internationally so that the number of vials that are being distributed in any given region is much smaller. Um, and certainly the number of people using uh, those banks are distributed all across the country and the world. In California Crowd, we ship to about 40 countries around the world. We send thousands of vials a year to Australia, to the UK, to Israel and Chile. Um, so you're really distributing the, the donors uh, on a much wider plane. Um, than using a local smaller bank. Um, the process is pretty straightforward and, and is not dissimilar to sort of online shopping in general. I, I hate to sort of equate it to Amazon, but uh, that's kind of where our our world has gone. And so when you, you go to our website, or it, it's similar for other sperm banks as well, um, most banks will have you open an account. Uh, there should not be a fee for opening that account. Um, and that's going to give you access to the donor catalog, usually a, a a good amount of free information. Um, you can learn more about the bank itself. You can learn more about the process. Um, but you start searching, and you can narrow it down by almost anything you can imagine. Certainly, physical characteristics, height, weight, eye color, hair color, that kind of thing. Um, educational background, religion, uh, blood type, a whole bunch of things like that. Uh, as you start getting sort of deeper into the, the donor selection process, you get to read essays, you get to hear audio interviews, you see photographs, childhood photographs of the donors. Um, you get three generations of family medical history on the donors. You get, you get a ton. You get, honestly, so much more than, you know, a heterosexual couple uh, who meets and, and falls in love and decides to have a child. You know, you'll, you'll know more than, than the woman would know about the man, certainly, because we sort of make the donors answer questions they never even really considered about themselves. And so it's a pretty deep dive into the, to the psyche of the donor. Uh, in terms of the screening process, one, less than 1% of the applicants who apply actually become donors. Not only do we have educational requirements and sort of minimal height requirements, um, we have obviously specimen quality requirements. We do uh, extended genetic testing. So we're looking at over uh, 260 genetic conditions that we're testing the donors for now, um, which means that a good percentage of the donors will have no genetic mutations on that panel that we're doing but a good percentage of them will also be carriers of one or more genetic mutations. Now, the important thing to remember here is that every human being carries genetic mutations. We, none of us are, are perfect genetically, but when you're a carrier of a recessive trait, that means that both biological parents have to have that condition and pass it on to the child. And so most of us, if not all of us, obviously, are walking around with um, multiple mutations that we got from one of our parents and uh, have no idea. We're not affected by the, the condition of the disease. It doesn't impact our lives in any way. So when you choose a sperm donor who is a carrier of, of one of these rare conditions, 
um, all you got to really worry about is making sure that you are not a carrier of the exact same mutation. And these are things that occur anywhere from, you know, one out of 75 people carry it to one out of 500 people carry it. It can be incredibly rare. So uh, it's really simple and low cost to get yourself screened as well. And that not only tells you um, which donor you can choose, but a lot about your own health history and things to think about potentially moving forward. Um, so that's part of the screening as well. We also do uh, comprehensive psychological screening on these donors. Um, they meet with the psychologist. They take a, what's called a PAI, which is a, a personality assessment uh, instrument that uh, is used just to, to look at potential for um, bipolar disorder, um, depression, things like that. Uh, there's a long discussion had with the donor by the psychologist as well about, you know, the process of being a sperm donor and what that entails. Um, so it's a really strong form uh, of informed consent. What the donor really realizes that someday there will be offspring and very likely these offspring will want to know more about that donor. That sort of brings me um, to the donor types that are available. Different sperm banks offer different types of donors. California Cryobank offers traditional anonymous donors. Uh, what we call open donors, and then most recently, what we call ID disclosure donors. Now, all of them are very similar. Um, basically, an anonymous donor is not committing to any contact with the child at any point. However, once the child turns 18, they can contact us, and we will then, in turn, contact the donor. And if the donor is open to it, we will facilitate anonymous contact back and forth between the child and the donor. Now, many times this can evolve into more. It can be a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship where the donor and, and offspring meet directly, but that's only going to happen if both parties are open to that and agree to that. Um, and we will do everything we can to make that as smoothless and seamless as possible for everybody. Now, sometimes the donors may say no. Um, they are not interested in the contact. Uh, the advantage to having it go through California CrowdBank is that we can talk to them and try and sort of understand what their hesitation is. And I mean, it's understandable. These guys have, you know, done something 18, 20 years earlier, and now they have a life and a family and a career, and, and they may be nervous. And as long as we can get a chance to talk to them and, and have them understand that, you know, the, the offspring is not looking for a father figure. Offspring is not looking for money or a kidney or anything. They just have questions, very natural questions. Not all kids do, but many kids will. And so once the donors can understand that, oh, they just kind of want to know more about me for themselves, um, they tend to be much more open to that contact. Our open donors, which would be the next category up, are basically the exact same as the anonymous donors in terms of contact, except at the time of donation, they are committing to saying yes when we request that contact. So we're then going to contact them and say, hey, just like we talked about 20 years ago, uh, we have a young man or woman who's interested in contacting you. That will be facilitated by California Cryobank back and forth. And we'll make that happen. And that can, again, grow into something more personal and direct or might just be that one contact. Finally, we have the ID disclosure donors, which is sort of the next step that we introduce the donor to the, to the child. And then ultimately, the child uh, will have access to that donor's name and last known address that we have on file. Um, basically, this is fairly new, really within the last year. Uh, it's something that we've thought about for a long time and, and heard from people that was important to them. And so we have uh, done everything we can to make this happen. We have, I think, about of our five, well, probably about 600 donors in the catalog now. I'd say maybe a little over 100 are ID disclosure. And moving forward, we'll have more and more. Um, so it, that's something to consider, too. Uh, typically, 
you will have potential access to any of the donors. So I, I hesitate to have people choose a donor specifically based on access. Um, but if it's something that's critically important to you, then you certainly have that option. So you should check with whatever sperm bank you use to make sure their programs fit your needs. There are banks that present themselves as if they have sort of an ID disclosure type program, but it really is more like the open program I've described. Um, ordering process is easy, like I said, online, open an account, shipping. Uh, we use FedEx. We can get it there pretty much overnight, although I, I really suggest that you not wait to the last possible minute. Uh, it's certainly possible to ovulate early. You don't want to miss a cycle. It's possible if there be weather somewhere in the country and FedEx has a slowdown or a shutdown. And so you certainly don't want to miss, miss the cycle and, and spend all that time and money and energy and not be able to follow through. Um, we have client service representatives on the phones from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you go to our website, cryobank.com, you can find the number there, 866-927-9622. Uh, um, if that helps. And uh, they can certainly help you with understanding the process, donor selection process, the ordering process, any questions you have overall. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. That was really a fantastic overview. And I appreciate how you touched on some of the tips and tricks and even some potential challenges. Um, I wonder if you have one piece of overall advice that you would give to our families. Uh, sure. I think obviously the, the most uh, daunting part of this is the donor selection process itself. <clears throat> uh, I think it's important to just to follow your gut. Um, there are no wrong choices. All these donors are equally capable of contributing to your building your family. Uh, and when you get kind of caught up in the details of, well, he's half an inch taller, but his eyes are a better shade of green, it gets, it gets to be a lot. And I think it's important to remember that at the end of the day, this is about building your family. And the first time you hear your child's heartbeat, um, the day your child's born, uh, and every moment after that, you will never regret your donor selection. Nobody has ever called me back and said, oh, you know what? She's cute, but she might have been better if we'd have gone with 11475. So could we train her back in and start over? Like It, it never happens. Um, and lastly, uh, for couples, the donor selection process can be, um, can be tense sometimes. And so one of the things I found that's really helpful is to go through the selection process as individuals. Open one account in the name of whoever's going to be inseminated first, because it's really important that we have all the paperwork correct when it comes time to order. But use the same account, go through, make some choices about like your top five or 10, and then compare your lists and start from a place of commonality. Start from, you know, oh, we both like these three guys. Let's really look deeper at these three guys instead of trying to debate and, and bounce back and forth and do it at the same time. Cause it's really hard to do that. You can't really get as deep into it as you might like to. And it seems like people, when you're, when you're starting from a point uh, of commonality versus a point of contention, uh, it all goes much smoother. Great. Scott, thank you so much for sharing all that wonderful information and we will have your uh, facilities information linked on our website. So if people have more questions, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Erica, thank you for being here today and sharing your thoughts and expert insight with us. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me today. Um, so I'm going to be giving you guys an overview of the surrogacy and egg donation process. Uh, and so just to sort of give you the overarching concept, uh, in the assisted reproduction world, we talk about the four ingredients it takes to make a baby. 
And those four ingredients are an egg, a sperm, a womb, and a family to go home to. When people are pursuing surrogacy, it means the piece of those things that they are missing is the womb. And surrogacy is a way to uh, sort of solve that problem, if you will. So um, surrogacy essentially is when we uh, find women who are interested in helping create families who love pregnancy, um, and we're helping to screen those women to make sure that they're appropriate for this process, and we're matching those women with intended parents, people who want to have a family. And our intended parents come from all walks of life. We have gay couples, gay singles, lesbian couples, lesbian singles, heterosexual couples and singles, people from all over the world. Um, and so what we're doing is, as an agency, is educating people about how the surrogacy process works, giving them um, some direction and things to think about for their journey, and then really being their project manager and helping them through every facet of the process from finding the right surrogate, being introduced to their surrogate. Uh, for most of our gay couples, the other piece of those four ingredients that they need to identify is an egg, which often comes from an egg donor. Sometimes that can come from a family friend or a family member of one of the partners. So there are many different, um, different avenues that people pursue in order to sort of find that missing piece. And then all of those things come together to help those intended parents have a baby. Thanks so much for that overview, Erica. I would imagine in your in your years of service, you've come across some tips and tricks that would be helpful for prospective parents to think about. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, surrogacy and egg donation is a, is a really beautiful process, and there are amazing relationships that get created, lifelong relationships most of the time through this process. Um, but it doesn't come without um, its challenges as well. So after having done this for 15 years, I sort of gathered some tips and things for people to think about as they begin to embark on this process. Um, so, you know, I talk about the ingredients for successful surrogacy, and that is making sure that trust exists, flexibility, and that you have the right team working with you. Um, so first, I'm going to start by talking about the right team. Um, surrogacy is complex. There's a lot of moving parts. You have the intended parents. You have a surrogate. You have a legal process that's involved that you have to consider. Um, you want to make sure that you have a good psychological professional on your team because it's very important that the surrogate and the egg donor, if an egg donor is needed, are properly screened uh, to make sure this process is safe for them psychologically, that they've thought about all of the good things that come out of it, and they've thought about the challenges that can come up too. Um, you want to make sure that you have a great doctor on your team who is practiced in the area of, we call it third-party assisted reproduction, the third party being the surrogate and the egg donor. There are many great doctors across the U.S., um, but you want to make sure you have one on your team who's, who's dealt with this process quite a bit. Um, you'll also want to make sure you have a great attorney on your team, one that knows all of the intricacies of all the state laws. Uh, in the United States, 
surrogacy is uh, sort of handled at the state level. So you certainly don't want your surrogate living in a state like New York, where currently um, surrogacy is not enforceable, or the state of Michigan, same goes. Um, and it can get a little more complex for our gay couples. So you want to be sure you're in a safe place legally within the United States, and that you have a great contract with your surrogate and with your egg donor. So it's important to have the right attorney on your team. I also recommend whenever possible to have the right agency on your team. Your agency is sort of like your project manager. You have all of these moving parts, um, your surrogate, your egg donor, your doctor, your psychologist, your attorney. And it can be quite a bit, quite overwhelming to try to manage all of those moving parts in concert so that they're all doing the things they should be doing at the right times. And that's where an agency can come in. Um, an agency should have sort of a macro view of the surrogacy process and be able to offer guidance and expertise at every step of the way, even if that particular step intersects with the legal realm, for example. Um, so an, a great agency can make a huge difference in your experience in the surrogacy process and also making sure that your process is safe. So that's sort of having the right team of professionals working with you. Uh, then you have the, the concept of trust and flexibility in the surrogacy process. Um, as you can imagine, after I sort of listed all of those people that are on your team, uh, things can happen. I always say like life happens during surrogacy. Life will happen for the intended parents. Life will happen for your surrogate. Life will happen for your egg donor. So sometimes unexpected things come up. I mean, I've seen in my career egg donors losing a sibling right before they're supposed to begin a cycle. And obviously that can be very traumatic and they may have to stop the process. Um, I've seen surrogates uh, separate from their partner in the middle of a surrogacy. So you do have to come to the process expecting that there will be some ups and downs and making sure that you have the right people on your team to help you through those ups and downs. So I always recommend don't come to surrogacy thinking it's going to be this seamless, perfect process. Um, it's a great uh, sort of crash course in parenting. I always tell people, you know, when you have kids, you have like this perceived control, but you really don't have total control. And surrogacy is very much that way. Um, and then I think the last very important thing that I would tell people to be thinking about um, is to really sort of find within yourself a base level of trust, right? So it's really difficult to trust a relative stranger with one of the most important things you'll ever do in life, have children. So how do you trust a relative stranger? That trust obviously should not be blind. Everybody has the right to ask questions and, and gather information. But at the end of the day, you have to trust that your surrogate is going to take good care of your baby um, while the baby is in her womb. Uh, and just like she has to trust that you're going to be good parents. Uh, so that's something that I think I see a lot of people struggle with is sort of how to establish that trust. Um, once people meet their surrogate for the first time, then they usually go, 
okay, I get it. Like she's, she seems great. I can totally get along with her and trust that she's going to do the right thing. And until you have that moment of meeting your surrogate, that concept can be a little bit difficult to grasp. Um, so those are the three tips that I would encourage people to take on as they consider surrogacy. Great. Thank you so much. And even within there, you outlined some additional challenges for prospective parents to think about as well. Erica, I wonder if you were to be able to offer uh, future parents a piece of advice, what what would that be? Uh, I think my advice would be um, to to really sort of look for enjoyment in the surrogacy process, even when that's hard to do. Um, you know, when I talk to new prospective parents, you know, I, I talk about surrogacy and we, and we talk about how great surrogacy is, but we also talk about the things that can happen in surrogacy that aren't so great, right? Like you might get pregnant and your surrogate might have a miscarriage. That's something that all people having children face. And it's hard when it happens. And it's, it can be hard when there's no explanation as to why. Why was there a miscarriage? And oftentimes there is no answer, and that can be really frustrating and challenging. Um, you know, we've seen late-term miscarriages, and those are even more difficult. Uh, but it, it's sort of normal in the world of reproduction. Those are things that all people deal with having kids. Um, but, it, you know, when you're when you're doing it with other people, when you have a surrogate involved, it can be harder because you're not only dealing with your own emotions, you're dealing with your, your surrogate's emotions too. And it's totally normal for her to have those. Um, some other potential challenges cost. You know, surrogacy is not an inexpensive process. And with each failure along the path to parenthood, there is cost associated. And that's so, so proper financial planning and working with a professional who can give you a real global view of the financials is really important. And financials can become challenging for people during this process. So I think having a good understanding of those potential expenses, what expenses could repeat if you're not successful, can really help set you up for a successful process. Um, and then finally, I would I would um, highlight the legal element of the process. The United States has long been one of the safest places, if not the safest place in the world to do surrogacy from a legal perspective. Um, but, you know, things can come up, right? State laws can change in the middle of your surrogacy. Um, so, again, having the right professionals on your team to help deal with those types of challenges that can come up can make all the difference. Wow. Well, you have certainly shared a lot of really important and valuable information with us. Thank you so much for your time today, Erica. My pleasure. Dr. Alvarez, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. At this point, I'd like to invite you to share your overview. Yes, thank you for having me. So the process of building a family is different for lesbian and gay couples, but the components to create a baby is all the same. You need an egg, sperm, and a uterus to carry the baby. For a lesbian couple, it starts with a consultation with a fertility doctor to review their medical and reproductive history, to review options for fertility treatment, and to start a fertility workup. Lesbian couples will need a sperm donor, either a known or anonymous sperm from a sperm bank, and then depending on the fertility workup, two treatment options are available. 
This can be either artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. There are several ways of doing artificial insemination. It can be done with a natural cycle, meaning that the patient's menstrual cycle is monitored and at the time of ovulation, the donor sperm is inseminated. Another way of doing artificial insemination is by stimulating the ovaries with either oral or injectable medications for several days, then triggering ovulation and timing uh, the donor sperm insemination. The pregnancy test is then done two weeks after the insemination. For in vitro fertilization, the patient is stimulated with injectable medications daily for about 10 to 12 days. Egg maturation is then triggered and the retrieval is done 36 hours after this. Um, the egg retrieval is done as an outpatient procedure. It's done with a needle under ultrasound guidance. And each follicle is aspirated, which contains the egg. And then embryos are created in the lab by using the donor sperm to fertilize the eggs. Once the, egg, once the embryos are created, they can be transferred to the intended parent during the same IVF cycle. This is called a fresh embryo transfer or the embryos are frozen and then transferred in the, next, in the next menstrual cycle, and this is called a frozen embryo transfer. A pregnancy is then done 14 days after the transfer. So the process for a lesbian couple could be anywhere between, depending on the type of uh, treatment, it could be anywhere between two to four months. For a gay couple, it also starts with a consultation with a fertility doctor to review their medical and reproductive history. We review the process of building a family as well as starting a fertility workup, which can include a semen analysis. For a gay couple, they, they need two components, the egg and the uterus. During the initial consultation, we discuss choosing an egg donor. Again, this can be either a known person or anonymous egg donor. There are two different ways to pick an egg donor. They could be eggs that have been frozen um, and stored in an egg bank, usually in a lot of six eggs, or it can be a fresh donor that goes through the process of IVF and all of her eggs are fertilized with the sperm of the intended parent. Once the egg donor has been selected, a gestational carrier is picked to carry the pregnancy. The process of choosing an egg donor and gestational carrier can be a bit overwhelming since there are several egg donor and surrogate agencies across the country that a couple can go to. But fortunately, at Fertility Centers of Illinois, we have one of the largest third-party reproductive centers uh, with our own in-house egg donor program, as well as a short list of reputable surrogate agencies that work closely with us and our patients. Once the eggs are fertilized and embryos are created in the lab, gestational carrier is prepared for an embryo transfer. This preparation is done with oral estrogen for about two weeks for, to get the lining ready for implantation. Again, we can do a fresh embryo transfer where the gestational carrier is synced with the IVF cycle of the egg donor, or it can be a frozen embryo transfer when the gestational carrier is prepared separately from the egg donor. After the embryo transfer, a pregnancy test is done um, in about 14 days to know if they're pregnant. So for a, a gay couple, the process of this process can take anywhere between four to six months. Great, thank you. That was a fantastic overview. I wonder what tips and tricks you might share with us. Well, some tips um, include um, that both parents can be biological parents. So for a lesbian couple going through the process of IVF, one partner can be stimulated for the egg retrieval and the other partner can carry the pregnancy. For a gay couple, they can split half of the eggs to do fertile 
to be fertilized with the sperm of one partner and the other half with the sperm of the other partner. One advice that I can give uh, couples would be to go to a fertility clinic as soon as they are ready or thinking about starting a family. For gay and lesbian couples, they need a fertility doctor in order to have biological children, so starting the process early to get information and starting a fertility workup is highly recommended. That way, the intended parents are prepared for the process. Also, I always encourage uh, future uh, patients to go to their clinic's website to review the profiles of the doctors, to look at their services, to see if they have a third-party division, as well as if they cater to LGBTQ patients. On our website at fcionline.com, um, you can find all this information for our clinic. Um, and then I also encourage couples to contact their insurance company to see if any um, of this process could be covered so that they can plan ahead of time um, financially. Fantastic. What might be uh, some of the potential challenges that your uh, patients face? A common challenge for lesbian couple, couples is going through the process of infertility workup. For a straight couple that has been trying to conceive for a year, they understand that there might be some underlying pathology. But for a lesbian couple, this is the first time that they're trying to get pregnant. And because of this, sometimes there are fertility issues that are discovered in the workup and the treatment um, that may delay the couple from getting pregnant. And then this delay could be a um, couple of months even, and this can be uh, frustrating for the couple because um, their expectation is that they're going to get pregnant on the first try. A common challenge for gay couples is the selection of a gestational carrier. This is a big decision that the couple has to make and develop a relationship with the gestational carrier as they will carry the pregnancy for nine months. And sometimes this decision can be daunting because not every gestational carrier will meet a very specific criteria that a couple may have. And do you have a, a piece of advice that you would like to offer our future parents out there? Yes, um, the best advice that I can give is that this process is not easy or simple. But if the dream is to have a child and a family, then never give up. I mean, it may not happen the way that it was planned or on the first try, but it will happen. Good advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Alvarez. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank again all of our guests joining us. One of the beautiful things about our family is the many ways in which they are created. Love really does make a family. We'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us. And until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.